Okay, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 12 this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, there the word of Christ says this, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven... For you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray that today you would teach us. Lord, teach us. Lord, what it is that we need to believe and what it is that we need to obey, Lord, concerning our faith in you. Lord, that our righteousness would be complete and that there would be nothing lacking, Lord, in our faithfulness and in our obedience to you. Lord, guard us against all covetousness, Lord, against love of money. And Lord, may we, uh, in our generosity, prove, Lord, that our love for you is greater than our love for the possessions that you bestow upon us. So, Lord, teach us these things today. Lord, open our eyes to the truth, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this passage where the Lord is (laughs) continuing to expose the sins of the people of Israel. Though the nation has a good name, right? they have the name Israel, they're not living up to that name, they're not living up to that reputation, but instead are living in many sins against God. And they deserve to be consumed by God because of their sin. Yet we saw last week that they have not been consumed. Though they should have been consumed, they had not been consumed, not because of their righteousness and not because they were of a superior nature to other men, but rather based solely upon the unchanging nature of God and His purposes. God had made promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed meaning that God promised to bring the Christ into the world through their flesh, that according to his human nature, the Christ would be a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, and of David. And this is why Israel was not consumed, while other nations, like, for example, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, were consumed by God, because God did not give an oath to the fathers, to the patriarchs of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God did give an oath. He did swear to the fathers of Israel to bring the Christ into the world through them and then to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth through that Christ, through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word that God gave to them. And it is impossible that God would fail to keep his word. And this is why they, the children of Jacob, were not consumed. Because God always keeps his word. As it says, 1 Samuel 15, 29. 
And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So on the basis of God's unchanging nature and the unchanging purpose of his will, Israel was not consumed. They received mercy and kindness from God while others did not. However, this does not mean that everything is safe and secure for them. This does not mean that they individually can relax, can take it easy, can live a loose and fast life, live in sin without any thought of the day of judgment. For though they have been spared temporarily, ultimately, if they do not repent, they will face the day of judgment. And if they continue to practice the sins that Malachi has exposed, if they will not repent of these sins, but presume upon the kindness of God, then they are simply storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is why we saw last week, Malachi is exhorting them to return to the Lord. Return to the Lord, and the Lord will return to you. Instead of God being against you, instead of Him being your enemy and your adversary, instead of His disfavor, you will have His favor. You will have His blessing. He will be to you a loving Father, but not without repentance. You must repent of your sin. Now, that's what we dealt with last week at the beginning of this passage. This week, we will turn to the sin that he's addressing here, right? He's addressed many sins throughout the book, and he brings another one forward uh, as a basis and evidence of their uh, turning away from God and their need to turn back to him. Now, before we get into this, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church as I did, and apparently this is true of many other denominations as well, as I've been told by many of you who didn't grow up in Southern Baptist circles, then I can almost guarantee that you have heard some teaching on the book of Revelation, on the second half of the book of Daniel, and on Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, right? Because these are very popular passages that people like to go to and they like to teach, especially this passage when the church budget is getting low and we need to increase the funds. This is the one that everyone goes to. So this passage has been, and it can be, can be abused and misused, right? Not that it is necessarily evil to preach on this whenever the people are not giving faithfully. That's what Malachi is doing. But in many cases, these things can be taught as a way of pilfering the people, as a way of getting more money so that the minister, right, the pastor, whoever he is, can increase his wealth at the expense of the people. So it can be used for those sordid reasons, by those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain, as it says in 1 Timothy 6.5. And we should certainly reject those types of ministers, those types of ministries that use these types of things to try to put God in their, uh, make it to where God is indebted to them, right? You bind God and you force God to give you money. You force God to bless you by your giving to him. However, we must also consider that this passage is in the Bible, right? That we're not reading from the Quran this morning. We're not reading from Harry Potter. We're not reading from any other book. We're reading from the Holy Word of God, and this passage is in the Bible. So we need to understand it. We need to obey it. It must be applied, and we must practice what it is teaching. 
Right? We can't say, well, people misuse this passage, therefore we don't have to pay attention to it. No, we don't want to misuse it. We don't want to corrupt it. We want to understand it rightly so that we believe it and we practice what God expects of us. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture. And this is in Scripture. So this Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Giving is commanded by God. Giving is a part of the Christian life. We cannot be obedient, faithful slaves to Christ without giving and giving the way that God tells us to do so. So we have to understand what does the Bible teach about these things? What does God expect of us? And this passage gives to us very clear, precise instructions on what it is that we are supposed to do. So just because wicked persons will abuse some passage for evil means does not mean that righteous persons can neglect that passage. No, we need to understand what it says. So with that in mind, let's turn again to Malachi chapter 3, and we'll read verses 6 and 7. There it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here we saw that God calls the people to return to him, to repent of their sin, and then gives them an assurance of his blessing. If you turn to me, I will return to you. Yet here, in typical fashion, the people immediately resist and reject the word of the Lord. Now, this has been common in the book of Malachi. When God confronts the sins of the people, they play dumb, right? They get offended with spite. They talk back to God. They resist and reject the word of the Lord. They say, how shall we return, right? What are you talking about? What is this, this sin? What is this thing that we need to repent of? What are you talking about returning to you? Let's look again at Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. We'll see from the very beginning that this has been the case. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? There again, immediately they question, they reject the word of God. Verse 6 a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Chapter 2, verse 13 says, This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So there again, why does God not do these things? They're questioning the legitimacy of God's stance against them. Then verse 17, chapter 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So here again, this has been a common reaction. God announces his word. God indicts the people of sin, and instead of humbling themselves before the word of the Lord, they 
obstinately resist God's word. And this is a characteristic of unbelievers, of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Acts 7, verse 51. This is Stephen's indictment against the people of his own generation, who are also Israelites. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And then they proceed to kill him. So there, you're, he's telling the men of his generation, you're just like your fathers. Well, who are their fathers? the men of Malachi's generation, just as they did, so you're doing. They resisted the word of God in the day of Malachi. Now in Stephen's day, hundreds of years later, they're still doing the same thing. They're a stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. They always resist the word of God. We can't be like this. We cannot be like these people. When God's word is announced to us, even if God's word condemns us, even if it speaks against a sin that we are committing, we cannot reject the word of the Lord. We cannot ridicule, we cannot kill his messengers who speak and deliver the word of God to us. When God's word comes to us, we must humble ourselves before the Lord. We must receive the word of the Lord by believing it and by obeying it. In contrast to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts 2, 36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here, there he's confronting their sin. You crucified the Christ. You put to death the righteous one. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You notice the difference, right? The one stiff-necked, uncircumcised at heart, always resisting the spirit. Here in the case of Malachi, questioning the word of God, right? What, what are you talking about? How have we murdered him? No, they don't say that. They say, brothers, what should we do? They're humble. They believe the word of God. And now they want to know, what do we need to do because of our great sin? Right? Teach us, instruct us. They're not asking this question as a skeptic. They're asking this question in belief, wanting to know what they need to do to have their sins washed away. And that's why Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the difference between the one and the other? The obstinate person says, how have we despised you? He says, how, has we, how have we wearied you? They say, how shall we return to God? Whereas the humble man says, brothers, what shall we do? Now of these two, 
which one is going to receive the blessing of the Lord, right? Which of these two will go down to his home justified? The obstinate rejecter of the word of God or the man who humbly receives the word of God and, <coughs> and wants to obey it? What does it say in Isaiah 66 verse 2? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A trembler at the word of God. This is the one God will look to with favor. This is the one who will receive the blessing of the Lord. But this is very, very rare. It is very rare indeed. There are few people who genuinely want to know what the Bible says so that they can believe it and so that they can obey it. Most people believe, they think that their doctrine and their obedience is perfect. That there's nothing in their life, there's nothing in their theology that needs to be corrected, there's nothing in their life that they need to change. Or, even if they will admit that there may be some areas of deficiency, whatever is lacking in terms of their faith and obedience, it's not such a big deal that it warrants any change. Right? It doesn't really need my attention because it's not that important anyway. And I can just continue believing whatever I want, living however I want, because God is a God of love and we're all going to make it there in the end. We can't have this attitude. This attitude stinks. And we don't want to have a stinky attitude toward God. We have to approach the word of God with humility, seeking to be taught by God, seeking to know his will in all things. And if the word confronts something that is lacking in our faith or in our obedience, then we need to change. We need to repent and then do whatever God calls us to do. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86 verse 11. That's the attitude of a true believer. Teach me your ways. Lord, I want to know what your word says because I want to obey it in all things. That's the attitude. Now, back to Malachi. They say, how shall we return? Right? What are we doing that is so egregious that it warrants a returning to God? Notice verse 8. Here is the charge. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Hear the charge. Will man rob God? The very sound of this is jolting. It's startling, right? It's meant to be, right? It's meant to invoke a response of surprise, a startlement, right? And an abhorrence. This is necessary because when men are living in sin, they are in a stupor, right? His conscience is seared as with a branding iron, as it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. How will he come to feel the gravity and weight of his sin unless it is presented in all of its evil, in all of its grotesqueness, right? It must be seen for what it truly is, right? The one who is living in sin, he has to be slapped out of his stupor so that he sees his sin for what it truly is. And here, God is charging the people with being robbers, with being thieves, right? How can a thief have the favor and blessing of God? How can someone who practices robbery be pleasing to the Lord? Can this be the case at all? What does the Bible teach? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It tells us clearly that we cannot practice thievery and inherit the kingdom of God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there, in that list of sins, of that it's impossible for someone to inherit the kingdom of God and practice these sins, right? Not repent of these sins, right? One of them is thieves. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Also, Psalm 50. Psalm 50. This is not just a New Testament command, but also in the Old Testament, it was taught that thievery is a practice of godless, wicked men. Psalm 50, verse 16 says, But to the wicked, God says, so he's not addressing righteous people here. He's addressing wicked people. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. So there, one of the marks of the wicked is they love thieves. Well, why would they be pleased with thieves? other than that they themselves like to practice thievery, right? They like those types of things. So here, clearly, Old Testament, New Testament, you cannot be a thief and inherit the kingdom of God. That thievery is an attribute of godless, wicked men. It is the wicked who practice theft and are pleased with thieves. Can someone be a Christian bank robber, a Christian embezzler, a Christian shoplifter, right? A Christian cat burglar, right? This is my profession, Right, what do you do? What's your day job? Well, I rob banks, and at night I break into homes. And I'm a Christian, right? I go to the church. I'm a member there. I've been baptized. You can't do those things. It sounds ridiculous to say that someone could be and practice those things while calling themselves a Christian. Now, when we typically think of robbery, right, we think of it in terms of the horizontal dimension, right? One man against another man. And this is commonly how thievery is committed. Right? One man breaks into the home of another man and takes what is his. And this is why the prohibition in the Ten Commandments against theft, against stealing, is found in the second table of the law. The first four commandments teach us our duty before God. How it is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength. And then the next six commandments teach us our duty to our fellow man. How it is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the prohibition against theft or stealing is found in the second table of the law because commonly when it is committed, it's one man against another man. Now, if the Bible teaches that if one steals from his fellow man, he is under the condemnation of God, then how much more if a man steals from God is he under the judgment, the wrath, the condemnation of God. That's the point he's making here. Can a man rob God? Can you steal from the Lord? Get caught red-handed and face no consequences. Get a free pass from God. Is he going to sweep this under the rug and say that this is no problem at all? Of course not. 
This is the highest form of robbery that can be committed, right? The greater the person, the more egregious the sin, right? It is a sin to steal from a fellow citizen, but is it not a greater sin to steal against the king, to break in and to steal from him who has that position of nobility? It is a sin for a man to rob against his fellow man, but it is a great sin indeed for a man to rob from God. How will someone who robs from God escape the judgment of the Lord? Someone might steal from his fellow man, and he might escape justice in this present life because he doesn't get caught. The authorities are unable to discover who the criminal was. But this will not be a problem for God. God has no difficulty knowing who is robbing from him, knowing who is stealing from him, because he sees all things. Nothing escapes his notice. And we know for certain that there is a day of judgment when he will reward each man according to what he has done. So we can be sure that if we rob from God, that our sin has been seen by God, God has made note of it, and it will be brought forward on the day of judgment unless we turn away from our sin, unless we repent of it. It will be brought forward and we will be held accountable. There will be a recompense. Isn't God able to get what is his own? Of course he is. He can do it in this life. He can do it in the life to come. Numbers 32, 23. Numbers 22, 33 says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. Isn't this what is the basis of theft? The people who do it think that they're not going to get caught. That's why they do it. They don't expect to get caught. They're risking that. Well, how can we rob against God? How can we steal from him and think that our sin is not going to be found out? Of course it's going to be found out. God will bring it forward. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59, and we'll begin reading in verse... Nine. Isaiah 59, verse 9, says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight, and among those in full vigor we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. There, the prophet says that our sins testify against us. Who do they testify to against us? To the Lord. Our sins testify to God against us, that we deserve the wrath of God. So will a man rob God? And yet, what are they doing? In Malachi chapter 3, he says, yet you are robbing me. 
right? He's presenting this. Can you imagine someone so audacious as to actually rob God? And yet you people, this is exactly what he says that they're doing. You are robbing from the Lord. Now, it should be noted, this is how we have to talk about sin. Whether it is our own sin, or whether it is the sins of others, whether it is the sin of the church, of the family, of the nation, whatever it is, we have to talk about sin clearly, accurately, according to the Word of God, with severity and with truthfulness, the way God describes it. Because what men want is to lighten the gravity of their sin. They want to mitigate their sin so that it is not as severe as it truly is. Right? The man has stage 4 brain cancer, but he wants to believe that he just has a headache. He thinks he has some slight malady, when in reality, he has a deadly terminal illness. This is how people deal with sin. They don't want to see it for what it truly is. But we have to. Sin must be detestable to us. We must loathe it. We must hate it with all that we have. But this will not happen unless we see it for what it truly is, unless we speak of it according to the word of God. So he calls it sin as it is, according to God's estimation. Right? A man who does not give according to God's standard would never say that he's robbing from God. No one would say this. Right? No one in the churches today would say that they're a thief from God, that they are robbing from God. But they would say, well, I know that we should probably give more, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to do so, but it's been hard. Right? We have a lot of debt. We have a lot of bills. We're trying to get on our feet. Right? These are the types of things that people will say that they use for excuses for why they don't give according to the standard of God. But what does God call them? He says, you're a thief. You are robbing from God. Or they'll say concerning this person, well, this man and woman, they had an affair. He ran off with his secretary. She's his lover. No, they're adulterers committing adultery against God. She's not his lover. She's his adulteress, and he is her adulterer. Or they'll say, well, they're living together. They're cohabitating before they get married. But is that what they're doing? According to the Bible? No, they're not just simply living together. They're fornicating. They're fornicating against God with one another. He is a fornicator and she is a fornicatress. And he's not gay. He's a homosexual or a sodomite. This is what he's committing against God. He's not an alcoholic. He is a drunkard. She doesn't struggle with eating. She is a glutton. He's not been out of work for three years. He's a sluggard, right? He's a lazy bum. This is what he is. Now, who uses these kinds of words today? How often in the public discourse will you hear these kinds of words? Adulterer, fornicator, right? sodomite, drunkard, glutton, sluggard. Does anyone use these words today? But are these not found in the Bible from cover to cover? Isn't this how the Bible talks about sin? So who should we follow? Should we follow the terminology, the discourse of the culture, or should we follow the terminology of the Word of God? Use the words that God uses to describe our sin. And the reason we have to do that is because the Bible puts weightiness on sin. It unfolds it for what it truly is. These are the words used in the Bible to describe various sins. And we must think and we must speak about sin according 
to the biblical definition. This is how we have to be. So he tells him, you are robbing, you are robbers, you are thieves against me. Which the moment that charge falls on the ears of men, it should strike what into us? Fear, Fear, right? Fear, terror, dread into the hearts of men. We should fall down begging God for mercy and forgiveness. But here in typical fashion, what do they do? They protest, they reject. They say, what are you talking about, Malachi? Right? How have we robbed you? How have we robbed God? This is not the attitude of a righteous man. This is not the attitude of a believer. This is the attitude of an obstinate person, of a disobedient son. Will a man answer back to God? Right? Will a man contradict God? Does he actually have the audacity to question the legitimacy of God's charge against him? And yet, what do they do? They do it all the time. As it says in Psalm 73, Psalm 73, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. This is what they do. They set their mouth against the heavens. And who dwells in heaven? It's the Lord of heaven. That's the one that they are against. So they say, how have we robbed you? What are you talking about, Malachi? What is God charging us with? Right? This is slander. God's bearing false witness against us. We're not robbing from God. So he proves it. Notice what he says. How are they robbing from God? He says, in your tithes and contributions. In your tithes and contribution. God required from them and from us a portion of our income, a tenth, right? A tithe is a tenth. That's literally what it means. And they are failing to give to God what he has required of them, right? When a man fails to pay what he owes, isn't this a form of theft? Isn't this a form of thievery? He's robbing, he's stealing, right? Withholding from another what is rightfully his is a type of theft. You're defrauding that person, right? Stealing can be taking something either by force, such as when a thief holds a gun to someone and takes away what is theirs, or by stealth, when they break in in the middle of the night or when they're not at home, and then they go and they ransack and they take what is theirs. That is a kind of stealing and theft. But it also can be withholding what we owe to another, failing to pay what is required. If my sink is leaking and I hire a plumber to come to my house and fix the leak and he performs the work and we agree upon a payment, he gives to me his time and his skill and in return I promise to give him money as an exchange for his time and skill. He sends me the bill and then I don't pay him. What have I just done? I stole from him. I stole his time and his skill because I promised that I would pay him and then I failed to pay what I promised. And who of us would tolerate this with our employers? Isn't that what we do every week when we go to work? We go to work under the promise that if we give our time and our skill to our employer, then our employer has agreed to reward us, to pay us a portion, uh, uh, some salary that, that is agreed upon. And if our employer doesn't pay us, then they have defrauded us. They have stolen from us. And who would be pleased with that? 
Will any of us tolerate that if someone does that to us? No, of course not. Or what about the governor, the governor of the land? He requires a portion of the people's income to support the legitimate functions of the government. Now, I say legitimate functions because the governor, the government, has the right to tax the citizens to support the legitimate functions of the government. They do not have the right to tax the citizens for illegitimate functions. And if they do that, what are they doing? Then they're stealing. They're stealing from us to support evil things, and they don't have the right to do that. But in terms of what is legitimate, what is ordained by God, they do have the authority to tax us to support these functions. And if I don't pay what is required, then I'm stealing from them. I'm stealing from the governor. I'm defrauding him of what I am to pay to him. Well, doesn't God have rights? Doesn't God require things of us as well? God has intentionally designed that his worship and the ministry of the word would be sustained and maintained in this present world by the tithes and contributions of the people. God requires a portion of our wealth, a tithe or a tenth, in order to sustain his worship and the ministry of the word among us. Now, God could do this in any way that he wanted. If God wanted to turn rocks into gold, then God could do that. If God wanted us to go catch a fish, and in that fish's mouth would be found a coin, can't God do that? Of course he can. He did it with the person of Christ. So God can do whatever he wants. He can support the ministry miraculously if he wanted to. But God has chosen to support it in this way, by requiring a portion of the wealth that he gives to us. Now, that's important to note. Everything we have comes from who? It all comes from God. So it's not your money. It's not your wealth. It's not your possession. It is in terms of other men. What is yours is yours, and what is mine is mine. You can't come and take what is mine. I can't come and take what is yours. But in terms of God, it all belongs to him. He gives it to us. He gives it to whomever he pleases. He gives whatever he wants to one man and not to another. He makes one man rich. He makes another man poor. But whatever we have, it comes to us from God. He gives to us 100%, and then he requires that we give back to him 10%. And then what do people say? No. They say, no, that's too much. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll give 1% or I'll give 2%, but I'm not going to give 10 I can't afford it. He gives 100 He requires us to give back 10 and people protest and say, no, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I'm not going to do that. Now, why is God doing this? Is he doing this because he is in desperate need of funds? Because he is so poor, he needs us to enrich him. He's doing it for what reason then? To test us. He's doing it to test us to see if we love money more than we love God. For a man who loves money more than God will not give what God requires. He will rob from the Lord. God is testing us to see, are we more concerned with earthly, temporal, physical life, or are we more concerned with heavenly, eternal, spiritual life? Are our earthly necessities, comforts, and pleasures more important to us than the word of God, than the spiritual life that God has for us. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. 
This is what we have to understand. Matthew 4, verse 1. says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man does not live by bread alone. He lives spiritually by the word of God. And this is why God has designed that this word of God, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, right, its presence among us would be maintained through our tithes and offerings by our giving of our unrighteous mammon in order to prove whether or not we love this world or if we love the world to come. Are we heavenly-minded or are we earthly-minded people? Right, A spiritually-minded man who knows and understands that his spiritual life, his eternal soul, the eternal soul of his wife and his children, he understands that that is contingent upon the faithful teaching of the Word of God. He will happily, cheerfully give what God requires so that he has access to the Word of God. Because he knows that is his only source of spiritual life. A carnal, worldly man who cares nothing for the life to come, who's only concerned with this present life, he will not give what God requires because he cannot fathom parting with this amount of money for the Word of God. Right? Just put any old buffoon up there, let him say a few words, give him a, a little here or there, and let's go on and have a good time. Because we're all going to make it to heaven anyway. Right? It doesn't matter. So what does it matter if we have a faithful teacher of the Bible? Just get someone, let them say a few words, make a sign of a cross, sprinkle some holy water on us, and it's all going to work out in the end. What a person spends his money on proves what is most important to him. This is a principle that is taught in Scripture, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke 12, 32. says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is. And again, here he's talking about your earthly treasures. Where your earthly treasures are is where your heart will be. If you're using your earthly treasures to store up for yourself heavenly treasures, then it proves that your heart is where? It's in heaven already, right? You're a heavenly-minded person, right? A man whose heart is in heaven will spend his money on heavenly things. But a man whose heart is infatuated with this world will spend his treasure on worldly things. So we must ask, what does our giving, what does our treasure reveal about the state of our heart? Because it's very important. Covetous, greedy, 
worldly-minded people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if a man robs from God, if a man withholds from the Lord what God requires, what, how else can you ex- describe it? How else can it be ex- explained other than greed, other than covetousness? Right? This is why a person would do those things. Right? God requires our tithes and our contributions. Yet very, very few Christians give to God what he requires. And in this way, there are many who are robbing from God. And figuring this out isn't even hard to determine. Right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have a PhD in math. You just you take what you earn and you move the decimal one place over to the left. And that's how you determine how much you should give. Or you take what you give. At the end of the year, you get those giving reports that I work very hard on. You take what you give, and then you take what you earn, and you divide what you give by what you earn. And if that number is less than 10%, then what are you doing? You're robbing from God. That's how simple it is to determine. And what you find is that there are many who give less than what God requires. Now, why? Why is this the case? Right, this is prevalent in the churches today. Why, when we have such a clear teaching on this issue, are so many Christians, Christians who claim to be disciples of Christ, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, but then they don't obey him? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Right? Why is this the case? And it is because of a plague that has infected the churches called licentiousness. Licentiousness is the plague that rules the day, and it has ravaged the churches. Jude, verse 4. Jude, Jude, verse 4. This is what's going on in the churches today. Cheap grace, easy grace. Is this not what is commonly taught and believed in the churches? This is why people don't take the word of God seriously. Not only in this area, but every area. Right In every area, they don't take the word of God seriously. They don't meticulously want to know what the Bible says and then want to obey it. Because of people like this. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They are licentious, lawless people, people who use the grace of God to promote sin against God, as if the purpose of the grace of God is to promote sin. What is the purpose of God giving his grace to us? It's to crucify our sin. It's to destroy our sin so that our sin would be completely obliterated. Yet they use the grace of God not to destroy sin, but rather to promote sin. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one that requires the tithe from us? Our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. But they tell Jesus, no. They say to his face, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to obey you. We're denying that you are our master and Lord, and we're using the grace of God as the justification for why we don't have to obey. Isn't this what's going on in the churches today? 
We're in the age of grace, right? We're not under the law, right? Christianity is not about rules and regulations. It's about a love relationship with Jesus Christ, right? The Old Testament, it taught tithing. The Old Testament, it was all about laws. The Old Testament was very restrictive. The Old Testament was a great burden, right? All all those things are just for Israel, but we're the church, right? And this is after Pentecost, and this is the age of grace. We live in the gospel dispensation, so none of these things apply to us today, but we're free. We're free, so we give free will offerings. There's no standard, no expectation. Just give as much or as little as you want. And what does it always turn out to be? It's always give as little as you want. It's never give as much as you want. People aren't arguing against tithing because they want to give 20 and 30%. They're arguing against it because they want to give how much? None, 0% or 1% or 2%. They want to give less than what God requires because they can't fathom, they can't imagine having to adjust their life. That they're going to lose five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month in their income that's going to have to go to the Lord that they can't use to buy nicer cars and bigger houses and go on better vacations. They can't imagine doing those things, so they find ways to skirt around the issue. They find these subtle, clever, crafty arguments to justify why it is that they don't have to obey God. The two commandments that they want to expel, that people hate, they want to expel from New Testament Christianity, which that itself is an oxymoron. We shouldn't even say that. It's not New Testament Christianity. It's Christianity. Old Testament, New Testament Christianity are one and the same. right? So it's not one way here and another way there, but the two that they hate more than anything else. And remember what Jesus said. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of God. And what are these two commandments? The Sabbath day and tithing. The Sabbath and tithing because these are commandments that have very clear, specific guidelines for how it is that we are to obey God and what it is that we are going to do. And isn't it interesting that both of these commandments, one has to do with our time and the other has to do with our money. And isn't this what people always say? If you want to see what's important to someone, what does he spend his time on? And what does he spend his money on? And these are the two that they want to get away from. Because they can't imagine having to set aside a whole day to worship God. Oh, that would be, that would be misery on earth. right? What a burden that would be. So restrictive that I have to set the whole day aside to worship God. And they can't imagine having to change their lifestyle in order to give a tenth to the Lord. And so they find their clever crafty, subtle ways to reject the commandment of God in order to establish their own tradition. They reject the commandment and replace it with a tradition of man that has no basis in the Bible. Though they will try to say it does have a basis in the Bible, but they don't. This is no different than what was happening in Jesus' day. As it says in Mark 7 verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus said. And these are the Pharisees who claim to be meticulous students of the Word of God. But he tells them, no, you're not. You are not studying the Bible. You're not studying it carefully. You, as a matter of fact, you're trying to overthrow the Bible. And you have a fine way of doing so. You reject the commandment in order to establish your own man-made tradition that does not come from God, but comes from the devil. That is the father of all lies. So they will say, 
Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is our Sabbath. And every day is the Sabbath, which means no day is the Sabbath, which means I can do whatever I want every day of the week. Right? They don't set aside every day and say, I'm going to devote every day solely to the worship of God. But they do their pleasure every, on all days, whether it be Sunday or whether it be any other day of the week. They try to sound very high-minded. They try to sound super spiritual. Every day is a Sabbath for us, which practically leads to doing whatever I want seven days a week. Or they will say, in the New Testament, there's a greater standard of giving, a greater expectation from God. In the Old Testament, they had to give a tithe. But in the New Testament, we're called to give ourselves to the Lord, to give freely, right? to give liberally. But then what do you find? What is their practice? They don't give 20%. They're not saying, let's abolish tithing because I want to give 50%. No, they're not doing that. As if that would be forbidden. Of course it's not forbidden. But they want to abolish it so that they can give little to nothing. And then if you confront them on this, what do they call you? You're a legalist. You're a legalist, right? You're about laws. You're about restrictions. We can't behave in this way. This is not how Christians behave. We can't listen to these kinds of people. We need to do what God tells us to do and give as God requires in two ways. There are two ways in which we will give and our giving will be pleasing and faithful to the Lord. First, the outward objective standard, which is a tithe to God, a tenth portion to the Lord. Again, God gives to us 100%, and then he expects us, requires us, to give a tenth back to him. Not because he needs it, right, it's all his, but to test us as a proof of our faithfulness to God, that we love God more than this present world. One-tenth of what we earn should be given to the Lord. And this standard precedes the law of Moses. Right? This was being practiced hundreds of years before Moses lived, before he ever went up on top of Mount Sinai. This is how the godly ones of old, this is the practice that they followed. Genesis 14. Don't we want to be like Abraham? The father of the faith? Doesn't it say in Romans chapter 4 that we have to walk in the footsteps that our father Abraham had? We have to share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, right? And faith without works is dead. What was one of the works that proved the faith of Abraham? Genesis 14, verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevet, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. That would be a tithe. He gave a tithe of everything to who? To Melchizedek. And who is Melchizedek according to Hebrews Chapter 7, Jesus Christ. He gave a tenth to the Lord. And the king of Sodom, so that right there proves that Abraham's not a covetous man. 
He did give what God required. But then also, verse 21 proves that he wasn't a covetous man because he denied to take any money from that wicked king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enur and Eschol and Mamre take their share. So Abraham, he shows that he doesn't love money, first by giving to God what he requires, a tenth, but then secondly, whenever he had before him the opportunity to take all of the spoil of war, right? All of those things that were gathered back that the king of Sodom had lost, Abraham said, I don't want any of it. I don't want your filthy money because I don't want anything to do with you. And he would not take those things. Also, Genesis chapter 28, right? We all recognize that Genesis 14 is before Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 19 and 20. So this is before the law of Moses. Genesis 28, verse 18. says, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me, uh, in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give to me, I will give a full tenth to you. So there, Jacob practiced what? Tithing. So Abraham and Jacob, two patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, both of them practiced tithing. They gave a full tenth to the Lord. Do we want to be like Abraham? Do we want to be like Jacob? Then we have to walk in their footsteps. We have to do what they did, and they gave a full tenth to the Lord. So there was an objective, outward standard that they understood, and they gave this to the Lord. But is it enough that we simply calculate these things correctly and give it, and as long as we're presenting the right amount, then nothing else matters? And the answer is no. Secondly, we must give what God requires in terms of the attitude, in terms of the heart, in terms of the disposition of the person. So there is an outward expectation, but there's also an inward expectation, right? The outward is a tenth to the Lord. The inward is cheerfully, not begrudgingly, right? That God loves the cheerful giver, and we ought to give to the Lord in the proper way. Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, this was the problem with the Pharisees, right? And we might say, well, I know a lot of people who tithe. Well, there are people who tithe who are not giving to God in the right way because they're not doing it for the right reasons. There are some people who will give if you'll plaster their name on the side of a building, right? They give to make a show of it. They want, they sound the trumpet when they give to the poor because they want people to see what they're doing so that they will receive praise from men. Well, they have their reward. They want praise from men. This is what they'll get in this life. But God is not going to give them anything in the life to come. Should we give in that way? No. That's why Jesus says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. 
right? We shouldn't be doing it to be seen by others. We should be doing it for the Lord. So the Pharisees were meticulous in their tithing, but what was lacking in their case was what? It was their heart. Their heart was wicked. It was a cesspool, and therefore they were not approved by God. Luke 11, verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now when he says that, does he say, have the right attitude and then it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter what you give. All that matters are alms on the inside, but alms on the outside, those things don't matter anymore. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, right? They're meticulous in their tithing, even tithing on mint, rue, and herb. Even these small garden plants, they are calculating meticulously how much they owe to God, a tenth portion of those things, and giving it to God, and then thinking that because they're doing this, that means that they're acceptable in the sight of God. But while they're doing that, what are they neglecting? They don't love God, and they're neglecting justice, which is another way of saying they're not loving their neighbor as themselves. So they're failing in the two great commandments, but outwardly they're keeping this meticulous tithe. And again, what does Jesus say to them? Does he say, just do the inside and neglect the outside? No. He says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not saying don't tithe. He's saying you ought to tithe, but you should not neglect justice and love for God. You ought to do it in the right way. And this is how we have to be. God wants our hearts first. Then he wants our offerings. It's not one or the other. They're both together. Our hearts first, and then we present our offerings to God. And God expects that we give to him these things. He expects more than a tenth. In that, he expects us to love him and then to give the tenth, to give the tithe as an expression of our love for him. And when we give in this way, giving of ourselves first and then bringing our offerings to God according to his commandment, then God will be pleased with us. Then we will have the favor and the blessing of God. And that's what we'll turn to next week, right? That God is cursing them with a curse because of these things. But don't they want the blessing of God? Don't we want God's blessing to be upon us? We cannot have his blessing while we're being disobedient to him. We want his favor and we must be faithful to him. Notice again what he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3. He, that is Christ, will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Whenever the heart is sanctified, then the offering is pleasing to the Lord. 
And this is how we must come before God in whatever we do, whether it's when we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we do good deeds for others, when we give, whatever it is, whatever outward form of worship we are performing, it must always be accompanied with a heart of love for God, with a heart of faith, with faithfulness and obedience to God. And we cannot think that we can live in sin, and then as long as we do these things, then that guarantees that God is going to be pleased with us. We can't do it in that way. We have to do it the right way. We give to God the inward part first, the heart first, the weightier matters of the law first, and then we give to him whatever he requires in terms of our outward forms of worship to God. In this case, in terms of giving, it is a tenth. The heart, and then we give to God the tithe that he requires. And this is how we show our love for God and live in faithfulness to him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that you are the creator, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, everything that exists in this world, Lord, exists by the word of your power, and you have upheld it by your mighty right hand. Lord, we know that everything that we have, every good gift, has come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Lord, all that we have has been given to us as a gift from you. Lord, we possess nothing before you, but we are simply stewards, Lord, renters from you. Lord, taking what you have given to us and then using it, Lord, as you call us to do. Lord, you have given us so much, Lord, that we might provide for our families, Lord, that we might provide for our living, for the necessities and the needs that we have in this present life. And Lord, you have allotted to us a great portion of the wealth that you give to us, Lord, 90% in order to accomplish the various things that we need in this present life. But Lord, you have required for yourself a tenth, Lord, a tithe to you. Lord, in order to test us and to prove and see whether or not we love you or whether or not we love the wealth and the blessings that you give. Lord, may we carefully examine our lives. Lord, this is such a clear exhortation. Lord, such a clear and objective standard. Lord, I pray that we would take it seriously, Lord, that we would not resist or reject the word of the Lord, but that we would examine our life in light of Scripture, Lord, and see if our practice is consistent with your word or whether or not it is lacking. Lord, if it is proven to be consistent, then we pray, Lord, that you would use that to bolster our faith, Lord, to give to us a confirmation of our love for you, Lord, that we are faithful servants and faithful slaves of Christ. Lord, if we find that our obedience is lacking, then we pray that you would humble us, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, and that, Lord, you would grant to us the grace of repentance. Lord, that we might turn away and do what is right and that we would not be like a foolish man who looks at himself in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he has seen. But rather, Lord, when we hear the word of the Lord, we pray that we would be quick to obey and to do all that you have commanded us to do. Lord, we know that greed and covetousness, Lord, worldliness, Lord, these are sins that are common to man. Lord, the love of money is the root of many, many evils. And it is through this desire 
that many people have pierced themselves through with many pangs. Lord, even in the Christian church, Lord, there will be many who will fall away. Many, Lord, whose faith will be choked out because of their love for money, because of their desire for riches and for wealth, that these things are more important to them than the things of God. Lord, we don't want that to be true of us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts, Lord, wholly true to you. Lord, that we would love you more than the things that you give to us. And that, Lord, we would prove this, Lord, in our generosity and in our faithfulness to you. Lord, as well, keep us from having this corrupted mind that thinks that we are somehow doing you a favor or that we are putting you in our debt when we give to you. Lord, help us to see and remember that whenever we give to you, Lord, you are the one who blesses us. Lord, we are not enriching you, but you use that to enrich us. Lord, to give to us spiritual blessings, Lord, that you pour down upon us. So, Father, help us in these areas to be faithful to you, Lord, to do your will, to do all that is pleasing to you. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.